In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I wonder if this has ever happened to you. I wonder if you have been in a conversation with someone else and you are telling them a story or you are sharing with them some belief that you have, some idea that you've been struggling with, or perhaps maybe you're just talking about a TV show that you watched. You're just having a conversation with a friend. And as you are sharing, you realize, you realize that the person has stopped listening to you. Maybe you said a word or a phrase, something that was an obstacle to them, something that distracted them, but you totally lost them. Or maybe you have been on the other side of this and you have uh, experienced that internal panic when you realize that you got caught up on something that someone else was saying to you and somehow in the conversation you lost the plot and they continued forward and you were stuck there on a particular word or a particular phrase. I would venture to say that we have all been there at least once in our life. It's this phenomenon of human conversation, of human communication, we're not always capturing all of the information that is given to us in a particular moment. And oftentimes, we get distracted and miss, miss the entirety of the message because we are called up on just one thing. I think I have told you this before. I know that I have told different individuals this here before. But my process for writing a sermon generally goes like this. On the Sunday before the Sunday that I am going to preach, I usually in the evening sit down with the lectionary readings, oftentimes right before I go to bed that night, and I will read through the passages for the following week. I like to take a few hours off after church, right? But then that evening, I like to visit the following, the coming Sunday. And so last Sunday, I lay down in bed and I flipped open my electronic book of common prayer on my phone, and I began to read through the passages for this Sunday. And I thought, gosh, the Hebrew Bible, great. Love this psalm. Oh my goodness, this epistle is great. And then I got to the gospel. And I felt myself saying, oh great, with a different inflection. I say this because there are just passages in the Bible that kind of taken out of context, read on their own. I know that when I read it here in a service that some of you, because if I was in your place, I would do the same thing. Some of you will get caught on just one word or one phrase. Some of you will not be able to move past a particular thing. And I think that that's okay, right? Like we're all just we're all just here trying to make it. We're all dealing with the things of our past and hoping for a good future. And that's okay if you got distracted this morning by a particular part. But the thing that I want to tell you is that when we read the Scripture, it is a lot like having a conversation with a friend. It really is. And so when we read the Scripture, we're not only having a conversation with God, but we are also having a conversation with an ancient writer and with an ancient community who first heard this, and we are also having a conversation with the larger church, because many other churches are reading this passage, the same passage today, and maybe groaning in their own way. And so we're caught up in this big conversation that is happening, and it is easy for us to get distracted on just one word or just one phrase. And so I want to share something with you that's been helpful for me. 
Sometimes when we are interpreting the Bible, the most helpful question to start out with is not, what is this passage about? But sometimes the more important question is, what is this passage not about? So let's ask that question. What is this passage today that we have read together? These words of Jesus, what is this passage not about? This is not a passage about hell. The word hell appears here in the passage, but that is not what this passage is about. In fact, Jesus is not talking about hell in the way that we conceptualize it in the 21st century or through most of the modern church. Jesus is using a Greek word, Gehenna. It is one of the many words, at least four in the scripture, that we translate down, that we compress down into one word, one modern word, hell. But Jesus is talking about an actual physical geographical location, Gehenna, a place where trash was burned outside of the city. So when Jesus is saying hell to these people, he is painting a picture, a vivid picture, that if they closed their eyes, they could see and perhaps even smell. He is not talking to them about eternal conscious torment. He is talking to them about, hey, if your eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it where the trash belongs. This is not a passage about hell in the way that we conceptualize it, or many of us conceptualize it today. This is not a passage about divorce. The complicated part about this is that the word comes up, but Jesus is actually calling the people of his day to a higher standard than they had lived by. Because the men of this day, according to the law, could divorce a woman for any reason or no reason at all. They just simply had to write up a document and hand it to them. Women had absolutely no power in this equation. This is not a passage about divorce, but this is a passage about relationship and treating people as human. This is not a passage about murder. Although, again, the word comes up because Jesus calls them once again to a higher standard of not just taking the life of another person, but not insulting them, not having angry or hateful thoughts that they would might be liable to the same consequences by having this kind of internal reaction to another human being. This is not a passage about physical murder. This is a passage about respect for human life. This is not a passage about lust or adultery, although those words are mentioned. Again, this is a passage that calls us to a higher standard, to treat all people with human dignity and to not objectify the people who we encounter. I think that was most of the troubling words. This passage is a minefield, but really what this passage about is about when we read its entirety is that it is possible to follow all of the laws, all of the rules, and still be dead inside. I'm going to say that to you one more time. It is possible to follow all of the rules and on paper be perfect and still still be dead inside. Jesus is talking to a group of people who have spent their whole life trying to live up to a big list of laws. And what he is sussing out in them is that it has not truly changed them. 
And so, my friends, what is this passage actually about? This passage is good news. It is an invitation to us for true change and new life. And if we can read it that way, if we can read it that way, it is liberating to us because it tells us that the law or a list of rules is really just the base standard. And that if we are really going to be a new creation, we really have to be changed from the inside out, which means that we don't just murder people, but we love them and we wish them well. And that is a harder task because that has more to do with or less to do with just the way that we project ourselves to other people, but it actually has to change our disposition, our heart context, our way of being in the world. It calls us not to a performance, but it calls us to relationship with other people and how we relate to them. This passage, like last week's passage, is from a section of the Sermon on the Mount. And I like the Sermon on the Mount, gospel, uh, the uh, Gospel of Matthew's account, but I'll be honest with you, I struggle with it a little bit. The Gospel of Matthew is written to a predominantly Jewish audience, people who had followed the law all their life. It's written in a particular way so that they can understand it and so that it will make sense to them. Notice that Jesus over and over again calls them to remember what was said in ancient times. This would have been their ancestors, people that they related to. And it's year A, right, in the church, and so we're reading Matthew. That's, that's what we do. But I'll be honest with you, I like the Gospel of Luke just a little bit better, written to a mostly Gentile audience in a way that they can understand. And we didn't make it there today, but the Sermon on the Mount ends in much of the same way that Luke's gospel account of the Sermon on the Plain ends. Perhaps the same event, or maybe two different sermons, very much alike, but in two different geographic locations, or perhaps the same instance that two people captured with just different details and their interpretation of it. But Jesus concludes his sermon in the Sermon on the Mount this way. Be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect. Y'all, I haven't been perfect one day in my entire life. I haven't been perfect this morning. I've struggled. I've struggled with relationships and thoughts since I woke up this morning around 6.30. The moment my dog started demanding for me to take her outside wake up and defeat her when I wanted to sleep 30 more minutes because church was later today. I have never been perfect. So when I read Matthew, this gospel seems like not just a tall order, but an impossible request. But I love the way that the sermon on the plane ends. Because Jesus says this, be compassionate, even as your father in heaven is compassionate. It's interesting how two people can hear the exact same sermon, but interpret it in two different ways. One of those I feel like I can live up to, and the other one I feel like I will struggle with my entire life. Last week, I stood before you and I talked to you a little bit about the bishop's walkabout, and I told you that there was a question or an answer that two of the candidates had given 
And I'll remind you of that, that the question that they were asked was about how our neighborhoods experience us. And their question or their answer was, if you disappeared tomorrow, if the church disappeared tomorrow, would your neighborhood miss you or would they even notice? Last week, that dominated my thinking. I thought about it all day, every day. But this week, I found myself asking a different question, but I think related. What kind of church does this neighborhood need? A church full of people striving to be perfect? Or a church striving to be compassionate? Today on this Sunday where we gather for our annual business meeting at an odd time, we get together and we eat soup and we reflect on the year behind us and what we have done with the resources that God has given us. We also look ahead to the future, to 2023, and we think about the ways that God has blessed us in the here and now, and we dream together about what we will do, how we will act, how we will be, and how we will exist right here in this context. And so I'll ask you again, what kind of church does this neighborhood need? A church that strives for perfection, or maybe more accurately, a church that strives for the performance of perfection? Or do they need a church that is full of compassion, attuned to their needs, asking what resources we have that we can share with them? I really think that the answer to this question makes all the difference of the kind of church that we will become, and maybe that we are already. But it also causes us to be the kind of church that drops the obstacles that generally keep people out of this place. I know I can't be perfect, so why am I going to show up in a place where everyone's striving for that? But I can. I can seek compassion. And I hope that that's what we'll do together this year in 2023. Amen.